Would you open your Bibles, please, to Matthew 24? Matthew 24. This chapter and chapter 25, which Pastor Dirk will cover next week, make up what has been called the Olivet Discourse. There are five major discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the fifth. Jesus' teaching that took place on the Mount of Olives right before He returned to Jerusalem for His final days. So we'll finish the Olivet Discourse over the next couple of weeks, move into Advent, and then in February return to Matthew and finish it. Our passage this morning deals with what theologians call eschatology. What does that mean? Well, it comes from the word eschatos, which in Greek simply means last or furthest. So eschatology is the study of last things, the study of final things. Our passage deals with these last things, these final things, and specifically deals with the very last thing, which is the return of Christ, the parousia, um, the very final thing that will happen in these last days. There's so much confusion concerning the last days and the return of Christ. Any of you who have done any study of eschatology know that this is the case. Am I right? Um, Does everybody have it all ironed out? Okay, so there's a lot of confusion. This is the problem. We focus too much on the confusion. There's a lot of clarity as well. Let me just start with the clearest thing, the most important thing. Christ will return. It is certain. We can count on it. The other thing is we have pretty clear instructions about what we're to do until He returns. There is confusion. We need to humbly admit that. But there is great clarity that should give us confidence. I have titled my sermon, Don't Be Distracted, because we are so prone to distraction when it comes to this topic. We spend so many times reading the newspaper and things like that and asking ourselves questions about the events that surround the return of Christ that we miss the main event which is the actual return of Christ and what we are called to do until He returns. We need to focus on this main thing, this main event and the responsibilities that we have as His followers as we await His return. We're in good company when it comes to confusion about the last days. It's always been the case. Even Jesus' own disciples were confused about them. We see this at the beginning of our passage, but really we need to back up briefly to what we covered two weeks ago at the end of chapter 23 to set the stage for what we find 
in chapter 24. At the end of chapter 23, we saw the woes. We talked about that two weeks ago. Jesus is denouncing, condemning, whatever you want to call it, the scribes and the Pharisees. He's doing so with compassion. He's doing so through tears. But nevertheless, He is condemning the religious leaders of His day. And then He makes a really startling comment. He says, See, your house is left to you desolate. Standing in the temple complex, saying, your house is left to you desolate. And then what does Jesus do in the very beginning of chapter 24? He leaves the temple. I believe, remember we talked about prophetic action a few weeks ago? I think this is prophetic action. It's like in Ezekiel, when God gets up and leaves the temple over the Mount of Olives. Jesus condemns the religious leaders, then He leaves the temple. His disciples are taken aback. And they start to point out to Him this great temple complex where they're at. Look at these buildings, they say to Him. It's as if they're saying, surely you don't mean this magnificent temple is going to be left desolate. This is at the center of our national identity. This is at the center of our worship. But Jesus says to them, in no uncertain terms, you see all of this that you're pointing out to me, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. God's judgment is coming on Jerusalem, on its leaders, as we saw in chapter 23, but even on the temple. The whole point of the temple was what? A place where God's people met with their God. But now the true temple had come to earth from heaven. What's His name? Emmanuel. God with us. And what do the people do with Him? They reject Him. They say, we want nothing to do with you. And so there is nothing left for Jerusalem, its leaders, and even the temple but to be judged. The house will be left desolate. There wouldn't be one stone upon another. In Jesus' prediction, His prophecy came true just 40 years later when the Roman Empire came into Jerusalem and destroyed not only the city, they killed everybody in the city, and the temple was completely obliterated. <clears throat> but that's an aside. The point is, Jesus is predicting the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and His disciples, they know that this means something big is about to happen. They understand the significance of this prediction. If the temple is going to be destroyed, that must mean the end of the age was upon them, and that Jesus 
would come into His kingdom. That He would fully usher in the glorious kingdom. Their curiosity is piqued by His prediction of the fall of the temple. And so they ask Him the organizing question of the whole chapter in verse 3. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Isn't that what our question is when it comes to eschatology? But I want you to notice something here. They ask two questions. Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. But they really see these two things, the destruction of Jerusalem and the coming of Jesus and the end of the age is all bound up in the same event. They expect the kingdom of heaven will be seen on earth right away. They expect that Jesus is going to finally set up shop in this place, run the enemies out, establish justice right away. And so they want to know, when are the walls going to come down? When are the stones going to fall? What they don't understand is that there will be a delay between Jesus' first coming and His second coming. We understand that today, but they didn't. The time between Jesus' first coming and His second coming are what are known as the last days. When we think of the last days, we think simply of the days that are right up next to when Jesus will return. But the Bible seems to talk about the last days as being all of the days between Jesus' first coming and His second coming. Jesus inaugurated the last days at His first coming, but only when He comes again on the last day will the kingdom finally be consummated, which is what we're looking forward to. At His first coming, He came to save people from their sins. Only at His second coming will He fully and finally defeat all of His enemies and set this world to its rights. This is what I want you to get. Eschatology is already and not yet. There is a tension between what Christ has already accomplished and what He has not yet accomplished. The disciples didn't understand the delay. They also didn't understand that in these last days there would be many difficulties. And that the difficulties of the last days, you know, we have all of these promises, all of these hopes, all of these expectations, and then we come up against all of these difficulties. That the difficulties of these last days would distract them from their main responsibility. The same is true for us. So as Jesus answers their question, He addresses the delay and the difficulties that distract His disciples. And that was true for them, and it is true for us. I know that's a bit of a long setup, but I felt it was necessary to understand this passage. So now, without further delay, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word?
I'll be reading beginning in verse 3 through verse 31. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let all who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if someone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So, if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For his lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There's a lot of complexity here, but my sermon in a sentence is simple. There will be difficulties in the last days. We shouldn't be distracted. There's a delay, by way of reminder, between the first coming of Christ, where He came to save us from our sins, 
the second coming of Christ when He will save us from all of our enemies, set the world to its rights. But these last days, even though Christ is risen, victorious, we won't always feel the victory in these last days. Instead, we will experience the difficulty. We shouldn't be distracted by these difficulties. Now, some of you show up this morning with a fair amount of eschatological itchiness. I'm probably not going to scratch where you itch. I'm going to try and deal with this main thing that is on the screen here. If you would like more details about possible ways to look at this passage and the various views, you will be helped by reading Pastor Mike's sermons on this chapter. I think he preached three or four um, on Matthew 24, and you would read them to your prophet. But I'm going to focus on this main line of thought. The details about these difficulties are many. One of the difficulties in reading this passage is to see how it's organized. Where does the section start? Where does it stop? And I'm not going to show you all my work this morning. I'm happy to talk to you about it. But I believe that if we look at the structure of this passage carefully, we can see that there are three main things that are being emphasized in this passage. Two difficulties that we shouldn't be distracted by, and one destination that we need to be focused on. So two things to not be distracted by, and one thing that we need to focus on. That's where I'm going. Let's begin with the first difficulty we should not be distracted by. It is the deceivers. In the last days, do not be distracted by the deceivers. Who are the deceivers? The people spoken of in verses 4 and 5 and verses 23 and following as well, who come along in the last days and say, I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. Jesus says, don't be led astray by these kind of people. Verse 4. Um, they're going to come and many will be led astray by them. But don't let yourself be distracted by these deceivers. This happened historically. Um, right after Jesus gave this sermon and after He died and was raised from the dead, there were these people that were going out into the wilderness and saying, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah. And people were going out to them. So way back then in the first century, this kind of thing was happening. You can look at the history of the church and you will see that it has always happened throughout the history of the church. I mean, think of our day. How many cult leaders have risen in our day? The Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you that Christ appeared secretly in 1914. I think even He was in a secret room. Well, look at verse 26. What does it say? If they say to you, look, He is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, He is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Why do we need this warning? I think there are a couple of reasons, but one of the reasons is simply that when things are difficult, as Jesus promises here that they will be, 
Those of you who are involved in orphan care, is it difficult? Those of you who are seeking to bear witness for Christ in the workplace, is it hard? When things get difficult, and Jesus promises that they will, we are prone to want to look for a deliverer who can rescue us quickly. Sometimes that is some wacko cult leader who says, I'm Jesus. But it's not always that obvious, at least not in the moment. Sometimes it could maybe be a political leader who promises that they're going to bring some form of salvation to those of you who are in great distress. Jesus says, don't be distracted. Don't be duped. Well, how can we avoid being distracted? By knowing the truth that is as plain as day in what follows in this passage. When Jesus returns, it will be clear for everybody to see. We won't be debating like maybe people in the Jehovah's Witness are that did Jesus really come in 1914 or did He not? Nobody's going to be debating these things. Look at verse 27. As lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It won't be some dude just out in the wilderness or saying He's in some secret place if you'll just come and see Him. It will be plain for all to see. Look at verses 29 to 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the difficulty of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heavens, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man. You won't have to guess if He's returned. It will be clear. Look at the end of verse 30. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. I can't describe to you in a drawing what that's going to look like. What I think this is teaching us is we don't need to be duped. We don't need to be distracted by deceivers because when Jesus returns, it will be as plain as day to everybody on the whole earth. Second, don't be distracted by distress. So don't be distracted by deceivers in the difficult days. Don't be distracted by distress. Why do I use that word? Just because it starts with a D? No. Although that might have been part of it. It's actually a legitimate way to translate a repeated and critical word in this passage, a word that shows up in verse 9, and a word that shows up in verse 21. The ESV translates that word as tribulation. One of the reasons I've translated it as distress on the screen is because the word tribulation is a very loaded word. What do you think of when you think of the word? I think most people think of what they would consider the tribulation that will happen at the very end, maybe the last seven years before Christ returns. Something like that. But often when the word is used by Jesus, and in this passage, some of the way that the word is used, it's not 
referring to that. It's simply referring to the general distress that will mark all of the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. It is a tribulation. It's a legitimate translation of the word. I just use the word to distress to remind us of the general nature of the tribulation that is present in this passage, even if there may be a more specific tribulation in the future. Does that make sense? What are some of the general distresses that are spoken of in this passage? First of all, there will be wars between nations, famines, and earthquakes. These are tribulations, in a sense. But when we see these types of disasters, that doesn't mean that Christ might show up tomorrow. These are the things that mark every time, every age between Christ's first coming and His second coming. But it's not just natural disasters and wars that are distress in the last day. The church herself will also experience distress. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. In other words, the church will experience persecution in the last days. That's part of what is meant by tribulation or distress. This is not only something that will happen at the very end, but something that happens throughout church history. We also see that there will be fighting in the church, apostasy, false prophets. All of these things mark the general distress of the last days. We shouldn't be distracted. Every time we read a headline about a natural disaster or a cluster of them, that doesn't mean that Jesus' return is right around the corner. Every time we hear of a new conflict that is emerging in the Middle East, we don't need to be distracted every time we read about a pastor being martyred in India or somewhere else. We don't need to be distracted when we see big-name evangelicals apostatize and leave the faith or when there's division in the church like we've seen during this pandemic. We should be troubled by all of these things. They're not the way they're supposed to be. We should be grieved by them. They are distressing. But we don't need to get distracted by trying to calculate the exact time of Christ's return when we see these things because these are just the things that happen between the two advents of our Savior. The general tribulation, verses 6 to 12. I believe in verses 15 to 22 that Jesus describes a more specific tribulation. But it may be a different one than you think of when you think of a specific tribulation. I think it's describing, in the first instance, the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. You have to remember, what were the disciples' questions? When will these things happen? This house being left desolate. No stone being left upon another. When will these things happen? Jesus gets around to answering that question here in verse 15 when He says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee 
to the mountains. In the book of Daniel, we learned when we studied that book about the abomination of desolation. Who was it? We said that most immediately it referred to Antiochus Epiphanes, who came into Jerusalem in the 3rd century B.C., slaughtered a pig on the altar in the temple. And yet, what Jesus seems to be saying is that when you read Daniel, you need to understand something. It points beyond what happened with Antiochus Epiphanes. It also points to what would happen to Jerusalem in the first century A.D. when Vespasian would send his soldiers to surround the city and then eventually Titus who would destroy the city. He says when you see that happening, these pagan people with their idolatrous standards of Caesar who they think is God surrounding the holy place, get out of Dodge. Jerusalem is about to come to the ground. And yet, I believe when Jesus says, let the reader understand, He is teaching us something that is very important about the way that prophecy works. This prediction in Daniel points beyond Antiochus. It points beyond Titus, I believe to the man of lawlessness that is spoken of in Thessalonians or to the Antichrist. Jesus is saying prophecy often has near fulfillments and far fulfillments. So how does that work in a passage like the one in front of us? I believe it is teaching us that there are general distresses, tribulations that mark all of the last days, And then there are these specific decisive moments along the way that are really critical. Antiochus, Titus, at the end as well. There are general false messiahs, antichrists. What does 1 John say? There are already many antichrists. And yet, I believe there will be a final man of lawlessness as well. There was a great tribulation when Jerusalem fell. I think that's what Jesus is referring to. Something that Jerusalem had never seen before and would never see again. Well, how could that be? Well, there was never a time in their history that every single person in the city was slaughtered and the temple was completely toppled. And yet at the same time, I think there is yet a great tribulation that is to come. That's what I think is going on. You may disagree with me, but I think Jesus is saying redemptive history, prophecy, it repeats itself. There are patterns. There are near fulfillments. There are far fulfillments. You don't need to be distracted every time something crazy is going on in this world. You need to stay focused on what is clear that I am going to return and you have responsibilities in the meantime. I've told you ahead of time that all this weird stuff's going to happen. All of this difficult stuff, all of this bad stuff, distressing stuff. You stay focused. And I think 
that's what he is calling the church to do in verses 13 and 14, which I believe are at the center of the passage. I think the chapter is organized like a sandwich. And verses 13 and 14 are at the center, the heart. So if we're not to be distracted by deceivers, not distracted by distress, what are we called to do? If not thrown off by difficulties, what are we called to focus on? I think these verses teach us that we need to go the distance. So don't be distracted. Go the distance. In the difficult days, in the distressing days, we're told repeatedly that some will be led astray. Some will even fall away. But look at verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. What are we called to do? Don't be distracted. Focus like a laser beam. Don't let discouragement get you out of the game of following Jesus and calling others to do the same. Persevere in the faith. Don't be duped by deceivers. Don't be derailed by distress. Go the distance. Endure all the way to the end. How do we do that? We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter, literally the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We too are called to endure difficulties with joy all the way to the end, knowing the certain truth that Christ will return. And when He does, we will be raised with Him. All of the difficulties will be done. That is what should motivate us to press on in endurance. If we endure to the end, we will be saved in the end from all of these difficulties. But that's not all. Going the distance involves not just enduring personally to the end, it also involves going to the ends of the earth with the good news of the gospel. In fact, I believe that we learn from Peter's writings that there's a reason why Christ's return has been delayed. It's because he intends, not just he hopes for, he intends, and it will happen, that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. How will that happen? Turn four chapters over at the very end of the book and you'll see how it happens. It's when Jesus sends the church to the nations to make disciples of Jesus Christ. We shouldn't be distracted by difficulties. Focused on Christ's return instead. Going the distance. Enduring to the end. Taking the gospel to the nations. And one of the reasons for that is what Jesus says in verse 30. What will happen when He returns? There will be judgment. There will be people from all nations, people who don't know Jesus, from among those nations, that when they see Jesus returning, they will mourn. Why? Because it will be clear maybe for the first time that judgment is coming. 
But there will be others who rejoice when they see him coming. Also, people from all of the nations. Because when he comes, we read in verse 31, that he will come to gather all of his elect from all of the nations, from the four corners of the earth, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So that day, friends, it is a certain day that we need fixed in our mind today if we are going to endure in the last days, if we are going to be motivated to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Let us keep what is clear and sure in our mind so that we can do what we have been called to do. Don't be distracted. Go the distance. That's the basic message of Matthew 24. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word that reminds us of what is true even when we can't see it with our eyes, that Christ will return. May You fix that day firmly in our minds so that we can endure in the difficult days ahead. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.